And then, slowly, the Watcher becomes visible to the Fantastic Four. As he stands in the Great Chamber, using his vast powers to manipulate the very fabric of space and time itself, no sooner has the thought passed the Watcher's mind than the Fantastic Four find themselves swept upward into a whirlpool of shimmering energy, a floating, spinning whirlpool that brings them to a hundred-mile-wide chasm on the moon's surface, and the most crucial battle of their career. Welcome to Artifacts of Infinity, where we dive into the infinite abyss of Marvel's cosmic universe. I am Jonathan Hudson. And I'm Everett Christensen. This is episode four, and today we'll be doing something entirely different. We will also be covering Tales of Suspense 53 uh, and Fantastic Four number 13. Last episode, we left off on a bit of a cliffhanger. We will be returning to Captain Marvel and his duel with Sentry 459 in just a bit, but first we're going to take a look at a pivotal cosmic character who gives matches to children, Watu the Watcher. Let's begin with his origin story in Tales of Suspense 53, The Way It Began. The plot's by Stan Lee, with the script and art by Larry Lieber, inking by Paul Reinman, and lettering by Artie Simic. We open upon an operating room where doctors are struggling to save someone's life. The Watcher is observing telepathically and is lamenting that he can't just tell the doctors what to do. The Watcher explains to the readers that it's his curse to watch and never to interfere. But it is not always thus. Once, back in the ageless past, it was different. Very different. Uh, this brings up the first important part of The Watcher. Uh, see, he's talking directly to the reader when he says this, and it's never explicitly discussed, but he regularly breaks the fourth wall. Uh, we see that a lot more in the What If comics, of course, but just in general, he has the ability to speak directly to us. Right off the bat, uh, I just want to comment on I I still really like the way they have space portrayed here. It's not quite the the grandeur that we've gotten used to, but they still have so much going on, and he's kind of standing on this platform, looking out and and you know addressing the reader. But I still really like the way that it looks. I absolutely agree. In this particular comic, there are some really like wild expressions of the cosmos that uh, they don't really take a whole lot of uh, Kirby-esque style. Instead, there's something very different and in a way that I really appreciate, especially the cross-dimensional event that we get to later. Yeah, definitely. Well, he explains that his people were an incredibly advanced sky-dwelling race with tremendous moral fiber, if he would say so himself, virtually immortal and possessed of incredible technology. Watu and his father, Ikor, lobbied the ruling council to share their technology with other races. Uh, one thing that I thought was interesting is they have, like, paper money still. And that was confusing to me. They just like leave it out on tables. I get what they were going for there, but that was like strange. Yeah, it's it kind of cracked me as funny that they've just got like this table of jewels and cash. Like it's like, ah, oh, yes, sitting around super advanced race. 
just leaving piles of cash around. Flaunting that wealth. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> So Uatu and Ikor convince the others, and they decide that they are going to take the responsibility onto themselves. So they transform themselves into living energy in order to be able to explore the cosmos safely. It takes them months of travel, but eventually they find another inhabited world. On this inhabited world, they give the secrets of nuclear power. And then, you know, float off to observe a multidimensional equip, you know, eclipse. Why, why would you spend time dealing with people there, you know? Like you know, it's, they could have been around to impart some good moral lessons about the appropriate use of nuclear technology, but a multidimensional eclipse, which looks fantastic, by the way. Uh, it is cool. Is, is apparently just like a more pressing matter. Um... You know. Now this is this is the first instance of Watu just handing matches to children. Like the society was very clearly not prepared for this, and so it's not much of a surprise that while the multidimensional eclipse is going on, this race of people managed to nuke themselves into oblivion. Yeah, and then they promptly hold the watchers responsible for that, which is kind of fair. Like, you give matches to kids and they get burned. It is your fault. Um, Rather than taking any responsibility whatsoever, Icor declares that the people will forever be observers and recorders. I was a fool. I entrusted an enormous power to people who had neither the advanced intellect nor the moral fiber to use it wisely. Heavens knows, I wanted only to help them, but instead I have done them incalculable harm. There is no way to undo the catastrophe I have unwittingly caused, but this appalling deed cannot go unpunished. And so, as a penance, I vow that from this day on, my people will never interfere with other beings in the universe. We will become a race of watchers, observing and recording, but never partaking in the affairs of others. Now, to me, this seems like Ikor is completely dodging his responsibilities as contributing to the demise of these people. Like, instead of oh no, we're never going to interact with people again, there are still survivors on the planet. Like, I imagine they probably should have tried to do something to save the remainder, at least? Yeah, some sort of, some sort of presence on the planet to help rebuild and repair what they were responsible for destroying. Um... Honestly, reading this, I, I got a lot of vibe. Even though I don't even know that it would really qualify given when this was written, I really got a vibe for, like, the way that uh, our foreign policy has gone into places, caused a lot of harm through their involvement in the area, and then not hung around to fix things, and then been surprised when people were upset is really the vibe that I got. But I, I do have to say that for Owatu himself, like, I feel like his baseline goals here are, like, very valuable, and I liked that, you know, here's this group of people who have cosmic power, and 
there's enough goodwill, like, to be like, we want to help people. And sometimes you help people and things go wrong. But I really don't like that the takeaway is don't try and help people again. Yeah. I I think they actually do a good job conveying that, too, in the art at, at the end here. Watu looks really sad that they're kind of condemned to this uh, this this passive role that they've decided to take. And I, I think he's right. I, they could definitely do a better job of, of handing out this power and, and how to use it, but but completely withdrawing from that role entirely uh, is not the best course, and I think he recognizes that. So next, let's get into Watu's first appearance. That's in Fantastic Four number 13, The Red Ghost. It was written by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inked by Steve Ditko, colors by Stan Goldberg, lettered by Artie Simic, and edited by Stan Lee. On this cover, we've got this ghostly hand clawing its way out of a moon crater in the foreground, and the Fantastic Four walk about kind of exploring with the Earth floating in the background. I really like this cover because there's some subtle, like, hints of architecture and machinery inside the craters, but it's at such an angle that it makes sense that the Fantastic Four who are walking on the surface of the moon can't see them. I think it's really well composed, and, of course, the lettering is fantastic, like all of these early Fantastic Four covers, they have just great style and panache. Yeah, definitely. Um, this issue is entirely anachronistic, and it's baffling now, but it probably was rather dramatic in its day. Um, today it's it's arresting just how many curveballs it throws in so few pages. Yeah, so... We begin with an explosion in Reed's lab, and the other three members of the Fantastic Four seem very concerned about him. Johnny flies up to seeing what's going on when suddenly Reed is in an asbestos-lined stretch suit that saves him from the fumes. And, I mean, we know asbestos is dangerous now, but I imagine... Even back in the day, people weren't running around in asbestos suits? Here's the thing. We have known asbestos is dangerous for thousands of years. They have notes about it that date back to, to like, Roman times of people who worked in asbestos mines died young uh, because they couldn't breathe. So, like, we've definitely known. Yeah, I... Uh, there's a lot of asbestos use in this comic, and that's one of the kind of confusing things that it ha where it happens more than once in situations where I feel like people would be legitimately in danger. It does kind of look like he's wearing one of those like oven mitts, though. It's kind yeah, of it's design. I I I would believe full body oven mitt made out of unstable molecules is fireproof in a second before I would believe that this is actually unstable asbestos. Yeah. 
But we find out that the Reds, in, you know, scare quotes here, has been cooking up jet fuel based on a meteor recovered from the Tunguska event. Um, they actually don't call it that in, right here, but um, the Tunguska event is uh, from the early 1900s. Uh, uh, it's believed that what happened is a meteor flew in uh, over Tunguska in Russia and had an airburst. Here they kind of imply that it hit the ground, but what, what actually happened in Tunguska is it was an airburst that uh, leveled a huge chunk of forest and, you know, obviously startled everybody in the area. Uh, about three people were killed in it, but we, we don't have an exact number. Yeah. Uh, also, I really appreciate the reds and scare quotes uh, for this yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so Reed goes to an Arizona site and he's recovered his own fragments. And apparently with them, he's made a rocket that can take us to the moon. Yeah. Ben is not having this nonsense, though. Because when Reed starts explaining it, he basically says that he's going to do it himself, and he doesn't want to risk the safety of his team and his family, so they can just chill out on Earth. And Thing is not having that nonsense. Yeah, he squishes Reed into a fairly small graduated cylinder, saying, We got a big investment in you. We ain't going to let you go somewhere alone where you might hurt your adorable self. And the whole scene is just horrifying. The way that Ditko inks Ben is really messy and lumpy. And Reed being forced into the cylinder is like kind of made me queasy. Uh, I was also unaware that Reed could even do this because he normally stays at like roughly the same volume or larger than himself when he's stretching. And this is the first time I've ever seen him like legitimately shrink on page. You know, I you're you're right in that the way that Dicko inks him is definitely a bit scarier. Like his eyes particularly are, are pretty frightening looking. But I, I have to admit, I had a different reaction reading this. Um, I, I was probably focused more on the dialogue than the art reading this, but I was cracking up. Like, Ben is just like, I'm done with you. You're going in the timeout jar, yeah. and we're not doing this. Hey, and just, the, the I don't know, the way that he says it, I was cracking up. I, I really appreciate the concept of a timeout tube for Reed. I think he needs it yeah. fairly often. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, meanwhile, um, behind the Iron Curtain, there's a scientist training three apes. But this is Ivan Kragoff, and he's wearing a fabulous green fur coat with a really garish hairstyle where he's, like, bald, and he's got this long, kind of poofy silver hair in the back. And he's training apes to do his bidding by starving them. Yeah, so there's a gorilla who will operate the spaceship a baboon that he is filling with hate. Uh, he gives him a machine gun, and I don't know why you would want a hateful baboon with a machine gun, uh, and an orangutan who will repair anything upon his command, and he declares, 
At last, my crew of apes is ready. And now, we go to the moon to claim it for the communist empire. And, like, so I just have to take a quick aside and, and be like, I, like the, that, that's, not how, that's not how any of this works. Uh, the apes completely aside, but the USSR wasn't an empire. <laughs> <laughs> there there is two things that came to my mind first of all um rage-filled baboons is how we get 28 days later so let's not do oh, that valid very valid the second thought is uh as a mechanic i'm offended by the notion that he implies that the most brainless of the apes should be the mechanic it's hard work guys it takes a lot of thought also, implying that orangutans who can learn sign language is being, like, told to be the brainless one, this is, there's just a lot of, I'm getting a lot of curveballs here, that's all. Yeah, it's, 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 obs it's weird all the way, I think is the best way I could describe it, it's just weird. So... Kragoff and his apes and the Fantastic Four both get into their rockets and they blast off at the same time. And apparently Kragoff has made his ship out of transparent ceramic plastic and he's aiming to get an even bigger dose of cosmic rays than the Fantastic Four got. There's two pieces of art I, I would like to call out here. I love the design difference, even though it's a pretty simple image, the side-by-side -side where they're blasting off. Even though it's simply done, I really love the aesthetic difference between the Fantastic Four's ship and Kragov's ship. Uh, the Fantastic Four kind of has some familiar design features to a lot of the stuff they use, and Kragov's is a lot more kind of uh, angular. It, it's sleek. I like it's I like sleek, its yeah. sleekness. It's, it's a good design, and like you mentioned, he's made it uh, to where they get a maximum dose of the rays. And he's even strapped in a bed in a really, really horror kind of uh, look where he is fully exposed and screaming, power, 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 as, as he gets blasted by the rays. So in space, they see Kragoff... Uh, flying in his ship with the hammer and sickle so johnny throws on a chemical tuxedo that lets him flame on in space yeah he, he says flames it'll be a gasser and just <laughs> yeah. johnny womp, womp. johnny <laughs> for shame but i do really like the art of seeing the fantastic four kind of around the manhole with thing floating upside down i think that's really cool yeah uh and it raises some interesting questions as kragoff is unbuckling his safe safety belts uh, when due to the transparent ceramic ship the gorilla sees johnny outside of the ship gets spooked and picks up a huge generator and it left me with the question of why communists have gravity in space when Reed, Ben, and Sue clearly don't? You know, we've seen them reference, we've heard them reference a couple times catching up with the commies and trying to trying to keep up with them and not let them win. I mean, maybe they're a little bit more advanced in Marvel. 
you know, the 616. I'm actually extremely interested in this particular version of the scare quotes red the reds like i am not sure what the difference is but they're like consistently depicted not as we know communists were but rather you know in in a lot of ways the kind of jingoistic take on it but uh if they have artificial gravity like I'm super curious. I want to know all about their scientists. Yeah, I also wonder how much of it has to do with the fact that, you know, back then we really didn't know a whole lot about what was going on with their space program. And a lot of that, uh, a lot of that lack of information led to a lot of fear of just how far ahead of us they might be. Uh, yeah. And here we have Kragoff is trying to get Johnny away from the ship, so he picks up the nearest gun, and that changes into a baboon, who now can shapeshift into any object. That hate-filled baboon is surprised. I don't think the baboon <laughs> knew it had turned into a gun. Yeah, it it looks pretty shocked. Um, the orangutan has the power of magnets and we all know from marvel that magnets are the most powerful force in the marvel universe uh and can do anything that magnets work by magic yeah he he blasts johnny back to his own ship and so in haste the fantastic four land on the blue side of the moon uh the blue side of the moon is a thing we'll see come up. The blue side or the blue area of the moon is something we'll see come up in Marvel a lot. We'll see it later on uh, in the Phoenix Saga with the X-Men. Uh, and we'll see it with the Inhumans as well. Right. And it's an area that maintains an artificial uh, atmosphere, and it's full of cyclopean architecture from some long lost civilization and uh it, it's also warm enough that they don't have to wear suits there they're able to people are able to roam around freely now reed and sue pretty much immediately run off to find the other spaceship and uh i i was doubting immediately here it looks like they just run off to go make out real quick because they're on the moon and it's beautiful but uh, Johnny finds a building with a very different architecture to the stuff that they've been seeing, seeing around. It looks very new and shiny and well-maintained. Meanwhile, we've got Ben grumbling about how he's ignored unless someone needs some muscle. And he kicks a rock. And when he kicks the rock, it transforms into hate baboon. <laughs> this baboon is so shocking like the baboon also looks surprised that it's just been kicked <laughs> but i think i was more surprised that the rock was a baboon yeah this this is such a crazy situation it's exactly the kind of stuff i love this for so uh the apes and kragoff uh, now calling himself the Red Ghost because he's gotten intangibility powers, get into a fight with Ben, only to be stopped by the Watcher. 
Well, he's also calling himself the Red Ghost because, you know, the Reds in communism. He's There's nothing red about him other than that. He's wearing all green with white gloves and, I mean, and brown boots. Like, he he's not thematic. He's just, a, you know, very proud he's to be communist. He's just letting his communist flag fly. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's important, yeah, you know? Yeah, take pride. And, uh, and uh, so Watu reveals himself and gathers Kragov and Ben and explains how his people don't interfere. But fighting a war on the moon is just too much. He's not going to have him fighting on his back porch. And I really like these panels with Watu observing from his ship. Yeah, he look. It looks like there's a little chibi Watu in his ship as he's describing the living metal creatures, or you know, the civilizations decaying into brutishness and anarchy. Where there's just this like little Watu, just like watching. It's super <laughs> cute. I don't know why I love it so much, but it's super cute. It is. It is. Um, I do like the way they portray these different civilizations, though. Like. The, the creatures evolving from molten metal, um, these uh, green aliens in a kind of post-apocalyptic setting, and these Mad Maxian aliens with their gigantic weaponry. Like, it's, it's pretty diverse, and I like the, the, the span there. Yeah, I gotta say, um, is in this episode, in so many ways... Kirby is just killing the game. Like, the, like, parts of the moon that have the ancient architecture in them are all these, like, sweeping, barely comprehensible landscapes of just, like, super wildness. And I actually like the way the apes are drawn. I think that, that like, he also has a really good grasp of what a monkey looks like in motion. And that's just impressive because not very many people are good at that particular scale. Yeah. Not a lot of artists are able to do that, especially this, this early, I mean, even now, but especially early on. And yeah, he, he does a great job with that for sure. Um, the watcher gathers everyone up in a, in a whirlpool and transports everyone to this dead city where Kragov and his apes are waiting. And this dead city just looks like like we'd mentioned, so cyclopean, uh, it's great. Yeah, so uh, Kragoff manages to get the jump on the Fantastic Four. He freezes Reed and abducts Sue, and he calls her useless, and he's very lucky she doesn't have force fields yet. Uh, the baboon smothers Johnny in asbestos for our second asbestos-related danger, and the gorilla just handily is tossing Ben around. He doesn't seem like he's doing any damage to Ben. He's just, like, hurling him. Uh, but rather than finish things there, Red Ghost and his apes uh, beat a quick retreat, and the orangutan transports Sue via magical magnetism to a moon tram. Everything about this so, sequence is fantastic. Yeah, it's... It's a lot of awesome happening in a, in a short number of panels. Uh, Sue is trapped in a room with the apes, uh, but the red ghost isn't feeding them at all because that's remember that's how he's controlling him is he's starving him to so that 
you know, they only get rewarded with food when they do what he wants. And in her compassion, Sue frees the apes, who now freed of the red ghost mental control because he's not in the room, decide to pig out. Yeah, the red ghost is trying to lure Johnny and Ben, who have made a makeshift Johnny-powered jet turbine, uh, into a disintegration trap. But Sue uses her invisibility to warn the pair, and they triumph over the red ghost really handily here. Kragoff flees into the Watcher's sanctum, and a grumpy Watu telepathically terrorizes him for a bit before booting him out where Reed has built a paralysis ray. So Reed hits him with the paralysis ray, and they basically give the paralysis ray to, like, the apes and leave the red ghost on the moon. And the Watcher declares that he's leaving now, uh, and he says, but remember this well... No matter where you voyage, no matter how far you travel, to whatever reaches of this limitless universe, you will never be alone. I'd like to point out that, like, he says he's leaving, but, like, he totally lives on the moon. Yeah, he he doesn't leave at all. He's like... He's I, just, like, he's he's going for some Taco Bell or something. Yeah, no, no. I, I So, um, I actually have... Like, I do know where this leads to, is there's actually, like, another Watcher base uh, oh, okay. in the solar system. But Uatsu definitely stays in his house. Like, he doesn't, like, leave for very long. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's just bluffing him. He's like, yeah, you'll never find me here again. And then he's like, you know, I'm going to go grab some takeout. Yeah. So, so um, those are the, you know, introduction and the first appearances of Uatu. And I just want to, you know, take a little bit before we get into uh, the next thing to talk about how Uatu gets used from here on out. Um, essentially, he is present for a bunch of really, like, major turning points, and he meddles. Uh, for someone who says that he's not going to meddle, he saves everyone a lot. You know, reading this, I'm I'm more of a newcomer to Cosmic Marvel than you are, and uh, I I've seen him. You know, you see him show up, and he and he always says that you know I, I can't do anything, and then he he does stuff. And reading this, I think it really speaks to. Uh, that that way that he felt over the that initial uh problem that they had in the in the origin story you know he definitely feels that getting involved is the right thing to do and that you just have to do it responsibly yeah i have so one of the things that we get to have when we have the watcher in stories more than anything else is uh, a narrator who isn't gonna lie to us He's, like, the most reliable narrator, and he gets used as that a fair amount. Um, and then there's, like, his place in the What If comics, where he narrates and is talking directly to us, the reader, about what happens on the, you know, various universes that are not our Earth, and, you know, talks about the alternate histories 
he comes off as being a really cool dude, despite being a little irresponsible. Yeah, he definitely seems like someone you would just want to go and talk to about everything he's seen and kind of get his take on stuff, get some get some tea with him or something. And uh, it's I always enjoy when he shows up. Also, he gets used as a way of just signaling to the audience, like, it's about to get real. Uh, something really important is about to happen, so pay attention. Yeah, I I've noticed that that changeover really seemed to happen after Uatu stopped being an official watcher. So there's this storyline, which I don't know if you know about, but it's about the Mad Watcher. So basically there was this guy, Aaron, and he wanted basic, like, I'm simplifying so much here. He basically wanted to suck the soul system into a pocket dimension so that he didn't have to worry about, like, the celestials and whatnot dealing with things. And uh, Uatu used the Fantastic Four uh, to basically save everyone, and then he turned Aaron into living energy and was like, and no more corporeal form for you. So at that point, he then gets stripped of his official being a Watcher, and then he immediately goes back to his house and starts being a Watcher again. It's like you can't stop me. Yeah, it's like it was like oh, <laughs> like I had all of my official multiverse viewing powers stripped from me. Okay, I got I got a house and TVs, man. Like, don't know what you want. Yeah, what do you expect me to do? But around that time is when we started to see Uatu show up in scenes. I think probably the best example of this is at the wedding of Storm and Black Panther. Where he just shows up and doesn't say anything. Yeah. But that signifies to everyone that this is a, you know, colossal momentous occasion that will have ramifications on the future forever, right? And it'll never be undone. Right. That, and he's, he's, and that use really only started happening after that was in Fantastic Four 400. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a product of the modern era, but one that I I really like. Um, there's a DC character who has a kind of similar thing going on, but he hasn't been seen since uh, four crises ago. Yeah, something about like that. I, I can't even keep tabs on the crises in the DC universe. Don't don't worry about it, man. Just 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 keep keep on trucking. They scare me. <laughs> But uh, there is there is uh, one more story we're going to talk about just real loosely and casually here. Uh, it's not exactly a cosmic story, but it definitely deals with the Watcher and his death. And that is the original Sin uh, kind of mini event that launched uh, a, a kind of a couple different uh, story arcs going forward. Uh, it was written by Jason Aaron with art by Mike Diodato, colored by Frank Martin and lettered by VC's Chris Eliopoulos. And there were a couple of kind of like lead up stories by Ed Brubaker and Mark Wade with art by Javier 
Polito, Jim Chung, and Paco Medina. Um, and the first thing I do want to comment on on this is the lettering is extremely hard to read. Uh, especially if you are reading digitally like I am. Um, I was not able to read this on my phone at all. I had to switch to my tablet and I had to, to zoom in on, on definitely major parts of the dialogue because it's so small and there's yeah. just no call for that. I'm, I myself, uh, could not read this on either my Chromebook or on my phone and instead had to read it on my 2k monitor. So that's about the level uh, that the lettering is at. So, caveat emptor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, so the, the story itself doesn't have a whole lot of Uatu in it. Uh, he, we see him immediately before his death, and then, or rather what we think is immediately before his death, and then we see him a couple of times later throughout the story. Um, but he is, like, he is definitely dead at the end of this, and he has not come back. So that's where Uatu is today. So my, my first question here as I was reading through this, um, it picks up, I, I read through it on the trade digitally, and so it starts off with uh, Marvel Point One, and it's got Watu like it looks kind of like he's meditating, he's hovering in the air, and and we find out that he is basically like uploading uh, information to the collective hub of the Watchers. And we get some people sneaking in to try to check out his lair and uh, steal stuff while he is unaware. Because when he's doing this, he can't see anything. Uh, has this... My question was, is this a, a a thing that we knew that he did before? Or is this introduced here? I'm, as far as I know, it's introduced there. Maybe there, are, there is some story somewhere that I have not read where that is a thing but for the vast majority of the case like no no this isn't a thing it it just was a convenient plot device yeah it seems because they, they couch it a few times and it seemed like it seemed like they were kind of introducing the idea but i wasn't i wasn't as sure uh because they, they say that uh it's i think it's every three years if i'm not mistaken he does this and it means that he enters this fugue state, yeah, every three years. And for 42 minutes, specifically, he cannot see what's going on. And so that's, we kind of start off there seeing that. Yeah. So, in really, the story as a whole rolls out as a investigation of who killed Uatu while um, who, a character that was previously just a joke character, the orb, runs around causing some really massive havoc and chaos that disturbs a lot of people's lives. Um, but we also learn that cosmically, 
speaking, uh, the Martians, who apparently invaded originally in 1913, were defeated by this organization called the Watchers on the Wall, and that Nick Fury had become essentially the heir to this group of people who prevented alien invasions. And from everything I know about the Marvel Universe, Nick Fury has done a terrible job. <laughs> they get invaded all the time. He he does try to defend himself on that, and he says that uh, uh, for every invasion that you hear about, there's ten more that he stopped. But, like, the invasions happen all the time, so, like, I don't know. It's not a very convincing argument. The one thing that does convince me is that we do not get a lot of the Martians. So if I just imagine that his main job is just keeping them pesky Martians away, that would be good enough to me. Yeah. Um, there is there is a, a, a bit in the beginning of this story that I like, um, and I think it's the issue zero, where it shows uh, a young Nova. This is... This is... Uh, what's his name? I, I can't Sam? Remember. I'm not, is, I'm not, is it Sam, Sam Nova? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, it, it's uh, yeah, worth Sam noting Alexander. that Sam and the Watcher, one of the like last actual storylines the Watcher got before he died was very Sam-centric. Yeah, and this is Sam, and he's kind of like wrestling with who his dad was and he goes to the watcher and he just kind of tries to hang out with them a little bit and the watcher's not very responsive but he gives him a gift from the uh, Avengers versus X-Men battleground where they stopped the Phoenix Force because Iron Man is the worst mm -hmm. and uh Sam kind of you know gets to take a look around the watcher's you know, home and experience some of the power. He gets to see the armory where the ultimate nullifier is. And I really like, I don't know. I, I liked this, this zero issue. Um, I, I, like I said, like I mentioned, I don't know a lot about Sam Nova. I don't know a lot about the Novas in general. I'm kind of looking forward to learning that as we go, but I really liked this portrayal of him here. And then we see a recap of the, the story about why the watchers are the way that they are yeah i i just have to say like as an aside i'm also really excited to get to novas uh the nova Corps is definitely my second favorite thing named nova in the marvel universe uh but we'll get to that later um but yeah i definitely think that like Uatu gets a, like, aside from, the like, the weakness of the ending of the story, which basically comes down to someone has stolen one of the Watcher's eyes, uh, the Watcher has basically gets Nick Fury to deliver the finishing blow, which I don't understand why any of that but it winds up... Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't understand the, the decision-making process there, but 
it then ends with Nick Fury bonding to one of the Watcher's eyes and becoming the Watcher on the blue side of the moon. So there's a, a sense of continuity there that is at least, like, reasonable. Um, there's also, in one of the volumes of FF, um, Watu actually ends up having a son. Uh, so Watu has a girlfriend who then later becomes his wife, and then Hank, Pym, and the members of the um, the school, basically, the, the fantastic kids, uh, manage to help, and Blue Marvel, I should not forget that Blue Marvel is a part of that, uh, help deliver um, the Uatu's son, and that was also, like, right around this time. Okay, so is that who Watu's uh, uh, girlfriend, is that who is saying goodbye to him, like, at the very end of this story? Yes, yes. So okay. she... I didn't know who she was. I kind of figured she was important to him, but I didn't know who she was. Yeah, yeah. Um, she shows up a number of times. Anytime they put the Watcher on trial, basically, okay. she shows up. Um, and I, I mean, I, I think that, you know, well, she, I don't know how to explain it other than that warm feeling you get when you meet your friend's spouse. Okay. You're like positively inclined towards them because you're like, well, he's a good dude. And so I have to assume, you know, and yeah. cheap for her part comports herself yeah. like a watcher and that means she's not negative just pretty neutral and un uninteractive okay but yeah it ends with o old man nick fury being referred to as the unseen uh like you said he's bonded with one of the watcher's eyes he's wrapped up in chains kind of like a uh, you know a christmas carol ghost uh, we see that it is chained around his ankle, and uh, he says, you know, this is his burden and this is his curse. The other the other piece is this character, the orb, being bonded to an eye also, and I don't think that showed up to my knowledge either. Yeah, I don't know that we have seen the orb since. Uh, like... I might be wrong because, of course, there are a lot of comics and I can't say that I read them all, but I, like, found the orb in this particular main to be fascinating and I really would love to see more. Yeah, I, w I was kind of curious where that was going to lead and I don't think it's led anywhere. Uh, we do get Bucky... Uh who has been the Winter Soldier, becoming the, the Watcher on the wall, filling that void that Nick Fury left. And we get one other piece of mystery that we'll just have to address later, but Fury whispers something to Thor. And we don't hear what it is here, but he whispers something to Thor, and Thor can no longer wield Mjolnir. It, it renders him unworthy of, of wielding Mjolnir. Is that the best mystery to come out of this event? Yes. 
Yeah, it is. I I actually so my history with this this original sin story, I read it as uh I I was getting into Thor and so I picked up the digital trade shortly after it came out and I was reading through the God of Thunder run with Thor and then read this and I was sorely disappointed that there was as little Thor as there is, but that mystery remains a big deal. And it it's actually, if you read the whole story, the thing that Fury says to him is so powerful. I'm not going to spoil it here. Read it for yourself. But it is such a powerful commentary on on Thor if you've if you've read what he's done going up to that and i i love that the reveal finally well i think that about wraps it up for us i hope you've enjoyed our slightly more character focused dive on a character that until fairly recently was one of the cogs that kept the whole cosmic world spinning if you want to read the issues we've covered today, you can find them collected in Essential Fantastic Four number one, or volume one, Marvel Masterworks Fantastic Four volume two, Fantastic Four Epic Collections volume one, Fantastic Four Omnibus volume one, Marvel Masterworks Atlas Era Tales of Suspense number four, and Marvel Masterworks Marvel Rarities number one. Uh, you can find Fantastic Four 13. Uh, digitally on Comixology and Marvel Unlimited. The Tales of Suspense 53 is a little bit tricky. You can see it, you can read the whole story on Marvel Unlimited, uh, but if you buy it from Marvel or if you buy it from Comixology, the, the issue is incomplete and you miss the Watcher portion. So it's only digitally on Marvel Unlimited. Or, of course, you can always ask your local library. Now, for further reading, uh, there was the Mad Watcher arc, which takes place uh, kind of around Fantastic Four Fantastic Four Four Hundred, uh, it crosses over with a couple of other books, so it's actually a bit of a pain. But uh, like, surely they will collect it all some someday. Uh, there's the original sin, which we went over as far as like seeing the death, and then there are the trials of the Watcher. One happens more recently in She-Hulk number seven, where he basically gets sued to keep the existence of a race of people a secret. Uh, but then the more serious one is in Captain Marvel's 37 and 38, where he is judged for being too much of a meddler. And we will definitely, definitely get to those issues. Yes. You, you can reach us with questions or comics online. We're on Twitter at Artifacts of I, just Artifacts of Capital I, and Artifacts of Infinity at gmail.com. If sacred places are spared the ravages of war, then make all places sacred. And if the holy people are to be kept harmless from war, then make all peoples holy. This has been Artifacts of Infinity. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Everett. And this was edited by Chris. We will see you in the infinite cosmos. <laughs>